But uh, today we continue our series of messages in the book of Colossians. Uh, and I'll confess, I love the book of Colossians. I don't know if it's because it just speaks so clearly uh, to me. But the passage that we're looking at this morning, uh, at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, I think is one of the most significant for us to consider as, as followers of, of Jesus Christ. It's a passage that talks about power and submission. It talks about the role that we have as a result of our relationship with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we, we get into that, let's watch just a little clip from the movie Diary so of a Wimpy Kid. Of... So anyone else exhibiting symptoms of pink eye should contact the nurse immediately. In field trip news, consent forms are going out today for our annual History of Plumbing excursion. In sports, I is great. Are they talking about me? I don't know. I don't speak Russian. And finally, some positions have opened up for the safety patrol. If anyone is interested, see Mr. Winsky after homeroom. Now that's what I'm talking about. Safety patrol. Cops in middle school. You boss people around, report the jerks, and miss class three times a week. Safety patrol is a sacred trust. When you put on this vest and that badge, you become a protector of the weak. You become an enforcer of the laws of this school because today's litter and jaywalker is tomorrow's window breaker and graffiti vandal, and it's our job to stop it. So I ask you, are you up for the job? Yes. Then welcome to Safety Patrol. Just remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Now you get your first assignment just after lunch, so you'll be excused from the first 20 minutes of sixth period. But that means we'll miss algebra. Ouch! Do we get free stuff? Free hot cocoa. Could this day get any better? Whoa, is that Coco? Sorry, safety patrol only. Sorry. <laughs> you rejected the school paper, but you joined the safety patrol? Look, are you working your way down the evolutionary ladder? What? Look, safety patrol is the lowest of the low. The geekiest of the geeky, the island of misfit toys. You're just jealous they don't trust you to keep our school safe. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to secure the perimeter. Straight people, single file line, one by one. Securing the perimeter. Okay, highway, or kids, you, you can go now. Go to your classes. You're done. We'll talk about what that meant to you there. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around. It's always great to have the kids with us for part of this. And I think uh, many of them just saw one of their favorite movies, if I'm not mistaken, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. It was not autobiographical, so in case you're wondering. It could have been, but it's not about me. Um, <clears throat> but you know, in, in a very funny way, it really gets at uh, this, um, you know, lust for power, which I'm sure starts very, very early in our lives. And for these kids, you could just, you could see it in their eyes. The safety patrol, they're the cops of middle school. They get to boss people around, they report the jerks, and they get the perks. 
Uh, and, and the principal to me, it might be the most hilarious part of that scene and the movie. And he solemnly commends them to this sacred trust, defenders of the weak. Uh, and then after securing the perimeter, as it were, uh, they have their first responsibility, which is escorting kindergartners on a rope walk through the neighborhood and uh, barking out, uh, keep it straight, people. With great power comes great responsibility. Now, this morning, as we continue our series in Colossians, and we've called this Centered and Centered in Christ, the passage that we're looking at is really about great power and great responsibility. And in this passage, Paul tackles uh, what I consider to be one of the most vital yet delicate aspects of the new life, and that is power and submission. The ones with great power in this passage are husbands, fathers, and slave owners. Uh, and culturally, this was positional power. Uh, that was a social construct at that time. Uh, positional power under Roman law, the power of the father, literally gave husbands and fathers uh, despotic powers. Slave owners had complete power over their slaves. They were seen as mere possessions. But those with great power are reminded of their responsibility and the use of that power to submit to the best interests of their wives and children and, and slaves. So husbands to wives, wives to husbands, fathers to children, children to fathers, slave owners to slaves, and slaves to owners. We see that Paul's premise here is that the new life, in the new life, uh, people submit. Those who are under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, they learn how to submit. Now, submission is a sign of the new life. It's a sign of a new life. And while the old self, our earthly nature, wants to break out and break free, uh, the character of our new self in Christ is to submit. And so if we were to go back to what might be considered the original sin, uh, whatever that really was uh, in, in the Garden of Eden with, the, with, the, with, the, with humanity and the mistake that was there, the sin that was created, ultimately it was a sin of, sin of rebellion. It was a sin of, of grasping authority. It was, it was a sin of trying to usurp God's proper role. Um, and so submission, as we see um, the, the, the old life and the remnants of that uh, decision to move away from God, as we see that, you know, falling away in the Lord Jesus Christ, submission begins by agreeing with God about the reality of our sin and then humbly asking the Lord Jesus to forgive us. And so nobody comes into the faith without submission. We have to submit ourselves to that truth that we needed uh, forgiveness and that Christ, in fact, affected it for us. And then from there, humble submission, it gives character to our relationships and it gives character to our reactions down here. It's the essential character of the new life, the new self submits. And so submission, as we talk about it today, it might have already stung your ears to hear it because it has really become a dirty word in our culture today. Submission is, submission is a frightening subject in our fallen world because living in an out-of-control world inhabited by out-of-control people does not lead to the desire to give up control. All of us have been victimized by someone. We've been victimized by someone who abused authority. It could have been a spouse. Uh, it may have been a parent. It could have been in an employment situation. It could have been in some representative of the government. And our reaction is to protect ourselves and to resist, right? Get a defensive posture. We need to put those walls up. And our resistance to ceding control, it may protect us at times. But it often undermines our relationships. 
if it, if it leaks into those relationships, it hinders our performance, and actually it's, it's just simply a really negative way to live. And so if new life in Christ is what the scriptures claim it to be, it's actually a really positive way to live. It's not a negative way to live. So it can effectively block the process of spiritual maturity in our lives to struggle with this idea of submission. And so for us to be healthy, we've got to find someone completely worthy of our trust, someone who can protect us while we make ourselves vulnerable. And Paul says that person is God himself. In fact, if we take time to consider it, God has already proven himself trustworthy in this over and over again. We entrust ourselves to him because he is trustworthy. And so considering God's grace in our lives, considering the faithfulness of God in our lives, Paul has some instructions for us. And the first one is that we should submit, and we should submit as an act of gratitude. It's an act of gratitude for who God has done and, what, and who he is and what he has done. Beginning with verse 15 of Colossians 3, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so note the refrain of gratitude. It says, be thankful. It talks about giving thanks. And the term for thankful is what we get Eucharist from. Eucharist, oh, it literally means to become a thankful person, a, a person who is marked by thanksgiving. A redeemed person has an awareness of God that results in this giving of thanks. In Romans chapter 1 verse 21, Paul says, for although they knew God, and so he's talking about all the people who, who were exposed to and saw and experienced the creation and, and God's invisible attributes that are revealed there, even though all of those, they, they, although they knew God, they experienced that, it says they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so those who are outside of the faith and those who have rejected God, it begins with an unwillingness to submit and to give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. It's an acknowledgement of God that is lacking. And if thanksgiving is God's due from all humanity for his gifts of creation and providence, then how much more should be expected from us who experience so much more of him when we experience God's grace? You know, in the Christian practice of, of praying before a meal, which is, is a little bit of a dying thing today, I'm noticing. I don't know, maybe it just came out of my generation. Uh, you know, you didn't, you know, you almost felt like it was going to poison you if you didn't pray beforehand. Um, but just the little practice of, of thanksgiving, it's, it's really separating us from the animal kingdom at that point, right? And so we're actually, we're giving thanks, we're acknowledging the fact that God has provided these things for us. Very simply, we don't have to stand up and start preaching to the whole restaurant, but to acknowledge God is, 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 is very important. It's just a matter of giving thanks, and it, and it shows that, that we have been <laughs> separated out from those um, who, who believe that everything they have is something that they have earned and, and, and something that they deserve. Um, it's, we're the ones who say, you know what, it's only by God's grace. And so the root of peace in our hearts, peace in our relationships, and peace in, our, in a church community is it is gratitude to God. 
That's what begins the positive atmosphere within a community. That's the culture that he calls us to. We're all caught up in being thankful for what God has done. And for peace to reign, we must first submit to God with grateful hearts, which leads to uh, the peace that we crave. And then this peace, it's, it's not just a cessation of external conflict. It's not just that you know, people have put their weapons down, uh, but it actually is something that springs from within us. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't let them, and, and don't let them be afraid. Don't be afraid. And, and literally, Christ comes as he's the arbiter is the term here in our hearts. He's the arbiter. He's arbitrating peace. Reconciliation with God. He's our high priest and he's arbitrating his forgiveness in our hearts and it's the basis for our reconciliation with others. It's reconciliation with God, which begins that, and now we can reconcile with others. In Philippians 4, 7, Paul said, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, it will guard your heart. Like there's a sentinel at your hearts that is guarding them in your minds in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the word of Christ dwells richly within us, our hearts are receptive. And, and when we are in that posture, then we submit to each other. And this passage talks about admonishing one another. Well, there's no admonishment without submission. There's no admonishment. There's no admonishing one another or cautioning one another or reproving one another without a submissive posture. And Paul says, we do this with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so it's not like we're just throwing opinions at each other. I think you should this and I think you should that. It's an admonishment that comes from the word. It's an admonishment that comes from God's truth. It's not just my personal truth that I'm share, trying to share. So, so we're in a posture, <coughs> excuse me, to receive wisdom from the word with a submissive spirit. And as we're reminded of Christ's work on our behalf, how he submitted himself to our needs, then we learn submission to others' needs. We've learned submission from Christ. Christ is the one who submitted himself by coming to earth, by incarnating himself, by offering his life, by dying for us. I mean, the, the ultimate picture of submission, as we'll see in a moment when we look at Ephesians 5, it is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. We learn, it from, we learn it from him. And then finally, Paul sums up a Christian's responsibility in that last verse of the passage. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so the responsibility is simple. The new life, it is not a written code. It's not a bunch of endless rules. It is summed up in the name of Jesus. And we accept the responsibility that goes with that name. And so our submission, it's not a response to law. It's a response to love. We, we submit and we can submit because, because we're loved. Because the Lord Jesus loves us. He loves us unconditionally. And he gave his life for us. And so, first, submission, it's, it's just an act, of, it's an act of gratitude to God. It's a recognition. While we live in a, in a very flip world, in a world where, you know, this idea of submission is, is, is definitely not, um, it's, 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 it's not platformed, it's not valued by many people. Um, you know, the beat on your chest individualist who makes things happen and, you know, that we love to go to movies to see characters who portray that kind of, that kind of thing. But when we're talking about the spiritual life in Christ, gratitude is an essential part of that. And so we submit as an act of gratitude, and then Paul goes on to say that we also submit as an act of worship to God. 
Thanksgiving is part of worship of God, but is it this, this idea of worshiping God where we acknowledge him, it's another submissive posture, and it's an act of worship on our part. And so now Paul is going to begin to get very specific about what the new life should look like. And there are many examples from antiquity of codes of domestic behavior. And in this passage, beginning with verse 18 through the first verse of chapter 4, we find the earliest surviving instance of a Christian summary of domestic responsibilities. These are household codes. Um, and it's in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of a Christian's profession will be manifest. It's the most significant and often the most delicate and difficult place in order for us to be who Christ has called us uh, to be. And these relationships provide constant opportunities to glorify God or not. And the idea of glory here and glorifying God, doxa, it means weight, it means stuff, it means that it counts for something. And so the idea is that when we submit to God as an act of worship, we reveal that he has stuff, he has impact, he's able to affect us and affect the way that we behave. Um, his existence matters. He matters. Um, he has heft, and there's, there's this gravitas to God. It impacts, and then there's this gravitas that is a part of our lives because we take on, we take on that weight, that stuff, and that impact. And so Paul places our everyday relationships into this really an entirely new context for people of that time, and it's, and it's you know, entirely new for many people today as well. And so let's look at the different relationships that he addresses. The first is wives and husbands. Beginning with verse 18, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, under Jewish law, uh, at this time, a woman was a thing. Uh, she was the possession of her husband. She had no legal right whatsoever. Uh, under that law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, uh, while a wife had no rights. She had no rights to initiate divorce of her husband. Uh, wives did not sit with their menfolk at meals. They were separated out. They could not go to the market alone. And while complete servitude and chastity was demanded of women, their husbands could go out. They often had extramarital relationships without stigma. And so uh, both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties belong to the wife. And those were not the good old days, guys, I think for anybody. And without upsetting the order of families and destabilizing society, Christianity introduced a radical principle. They introduced a very different kind of social construct within the Christian household um, as, and, and really caught up in one phrase, as is fitting in, in the Lord. And this simple phrase placed a wife's submission in the context of a relationship with Christ. And then likewise, husbands are called to submit themselves to the best interests of their wives, loving them with kindness and compassion. And so this submission was an act of worship because it revealed that their relationship with God that accounted for something. Wives submitting to husbands, but also as we'll see, husbands submitting to wives. Now, it's not uncommon for couples in premarital counseling um, to struggle with, with this idea, you know, the, the S word when that comes up. Um, and, and when it does come time to discuss the ceremony, more than one bride in that process, you know, has proclaimed real clearly, hey, I do not want that word 
do not say that word in my uh, marriage ceremony. And so I always ask, why? I say, why? And, um, <laughs> and I usually know why. <clears throat> and out comes usually a really a very defiant statement. I'm not, I'm not going to submit to him. I'm not under him. I don't want to be told what to do by him. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Um, but then I respond this way. So there isn't going to be any submission in your marriage? So there's not going to be any submission in this marriage? Is that what you're saying? And then they get kind of usually confused. And, and I said, and I say, so if there's no submission in the marriage, then you will not have a marriage. And, and I don't think that you're working with the biblical idea of submission. And, and then I, I try to unpack some things. I talk about the difference between rank and role. Now, if we look at the Trinity, we have three equal persons, but they play particular roles. And there's mutual submission in the Trinity. But God the Father sent the Son into the world. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. There's this submission in the Trinity, but there's no ranking in the Trinity. And the same is true in a marriage relationship. And so now to the key passage for this, Matthew, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 21, it begins, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is a very important uh, umbrella that, that covers this passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we see that mutual submission is what Paul is calling for. And then works it out. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as, as, uh, as you do to the Lord. And so you're submitting yourself out of reverence for Christ as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, it's important to notice that Paul, first of all, uh, calls for a mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. And he describes the responsibilities of wives to respond to their husbands. However, Paul sets the highest standard for a husband. Uh, the love that Christ showered upon the church, giving up his very life. In fact, a husband's responsibility is to initiate through acts of love and service, just as Christ did. It is a responsibility of a husband to seek what is in the best interest of, of, of his wife in every instance, not his own best interests. And the reason that power and authority and submission get a very bad name is because of the selfishness that invades that and, and the getting for oneself. This is moving away from oneself. And so the husband's responsibility is to initiate through acts of love and service. It's a wife's responsibility to respond in love as is fitting in the Lord. This is mutual submission, but with the caveat that the husband submits first. The husband submits first. The husband catalyzes the relationship with that submission. And then there's a response, and then there's the synergy in the relationship, and that's what we call a great marriage. <laughs> Those are the folks that we love to be around. Those are the folks where there's a culture in their home of peace and joy and gratitude. It's because they have learned how to submit to each other. And even if a wife is hard to love, a husband, he must submit himself in love to his wife. And even if a husband is hard to take, a wife is called to submit in love. Now, I'm not going to get into some demands or something. Oftentimes, 
you know, we go off on sort of a tangent with this, like, well, what if he or she, you know, what if he's demanding something that is uh, against God's law or is just immoral in some way and so forth? It's like, no, our first responsibility is to submit to Christ, right? So this isn't just servitude and submission to the point of, of abuse. It's not. Um, but even when it's difficult and even when the relationships get emotionally charged and we're struggling with that, we must go back to our initial, our primary responsibility, and that is to find a way within ourselves to find a way to submit to the best interest of that other person. Now, when we submit to someone's best interest, it doesn't mean that we're always doing what they want us to do and saying everything they want us to say, because what might be in their best interest may be hard, may be a difficult thing for them to hear. It might be a difficult thing for you to say, but out of love, seeking what is in their best interest, and that is the umbrella that just constantly uh, serves as a proper grid for the things that we are, you know, oftentimes in marriage, I, I'm encouraging couples to, you know, stop asking what's in my best interest or, you know, what, what, is, what is in the best interest of the marriage? All right, so let's look at this one flesh thing that you've come together to create. What is in the best interest of that? That is what you need to submit yourself to and lift it up out of this immediate context to look at what you've come together to build. And so this submission needs to be a synergy. It needs to be an ongoing thing, and, and, it, and it makes for a great relationship. And then that marriage tells the gospel story. Then that marriage, that Christian marriage, as, as we see this love, the, 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 the example of Christ and the church being a symbol of, of, of marriage being a symbol of Christ's love for the church, then as a couple love each other in that way, then they're telling that gospel story. It puts it in a whole different context. It's living with a great spiritual purpose. And so that's husbands and wives, now children and parents. In verse 20, it says, children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, continuing with the natural order, the duties of parents and children come next. And children are enjoined to render complete obedience to their parents. And the term for obey is this term in Greek, hupakuao, means to come under a hearing. It means you place yourself under a hearing. And so the idea is that you hear it and do it. And so obedience begins with actually listening and with hearing something. And the reason given is that this obedience, it pleases the Lord. And in addition, fathers are directed not to embitter their children. As with husbands and wives, there's a mutual obligation here, even with fathers, even with parents and, and children. That mutual obligation is the key. The call for children to obey their parents was clearly understood in the first century. Under Roman law, the patria potestas, the power of the father, the father could do pretty much anything he wanted to with his children. He could sell them. He could, he could turn them into slaves. He could even, in some cases, take their lives. And it was revolutionary for fathers to be cautioned not to irritate their children by being so unreasonable in their demands that the children lose heart and, and, and consider it useless to even try to be in relationship with their parents and to please them. Embitter, it means to frustrate, it means to arouse or provoke. And, and, and so ways that a father can embitter his children, some of them are just are way too obvious. A lack of acceptance of a child. They just can't quite get it right. Or there's this attempt to motivate them to greater achievement, and so withholding that acceptance so that they do. Belittling the child, harsh punishment that humiliates uh, the child and frustrates him or her. 
And then there's the absence of discipline, which is a great way to really frustrate a kid and also to uh, make them wonder whether or not you love them. I mean, those boundaries are important as an act of attention and love toward children. So the absence of discipline or criti constant criticism, abandonment, you know, just breaking their spirit, just riding them. Um, instead, a father is called to submit to the best interests of their children. He is there for them, not the other way around. And so a father is taking his power and he is submitting it to the best interests of his child. And one of the things that we learn through all of these is that while it's obvious that husbands, fathers, slave owners had power, everybody in this passage has got a lot of power. If you have children, you know how much power they really have in your life. They can make your life wonderful or very miserable, right? And so, so th th this whole passage is really about, even though in different societal positions, how people are utilizing the power that they have. And one of the most powerful parental acts, actually, as Diane and I have learned over the years, is to just ask our kids for forgiveness, <laughs> you know? To, to actually, to just, actually just to, to confess the fact that we were wrong to them. It's such a powerful thing. We would never, that wouldn't seem possible in this Roman context. But within our families, to be able to humble ourselves before our kids like that is so powerful for that relationship. And we're modeling for them what health really looks like. So, so, so parents and children, and then finally he gets to slaves and masters. In verse 22, it says, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you but to, uh, and to curry their favor, uh, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So Paul is saying, character is what you do when no one's looking. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, uh, it is the Lord Christ who you are serving. So historians estimate uh, that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time, really about half of the population. And, and these were you know, conquered peoples who were brought into the empire and given that status. Like women, slaves were considered tools. They were considered chattel. Old slaves some were merely put out to die, like broken tools. Not always. Sometimes there were relationships that did form in those households, uh, but a slave owner had, had the right to do that. Within the context, household slaves, this is about household slaves, um, specifically servants within a Christian household are in view. And, and the fact that there is more instruction for slaves than masters implies the fact that these churches had a lot more slaves than masters within the churches, which would make sense. And then this makes the principles all the more radical since these would have been naturally more popular with the masters than the slaves. And the book of Philemon is an, is an illuminating commentary. It really is one that uh, couples with the book of Colossians on the mutual responsibility of slaves and masters within a Christian fellowship and on the transforming effect of the fellowship of their relationship. And so Onesimus and Philemon and this runaway slave and Paul encourages Philemon to welcome him back as a brother. Um, the relationship of, of owner and slave was fleshly, belonging to the world, world order, but believing slaves and masters were brothers first. That's what Paul was saying. And so if a Christian slave became a leader in the church, he would be entitled to deference from his Christian master. Can you imagine that? And so here's, a, you know, Christians coming together in a local church, and it could be that the slave was actually one of the leaders, maybe, you know, bringing the sermon that morning, and there was his master sitting out there in, in, in the pew. 
Um, however, uh, the Christian slave, if he became a leader in the church, uh, he would be entitled to deference from his master, but the Christian slave could not presume on that new relationship or make it an excuse for not serving his master otherwise. On the contrary, he would serve him more diligently out of love for Christ. And so, and so it's within this social construct that Paul changes all of these relationships. If a Christian slave had an unbelieving master, his duty would be to serve him all the more faithfully because Christ's, reputa Christ's reputation was bound up in the quality of his service. The Christian slave could not be uh, an ancient version of modern clock watchers who work as little as they can get away with. Christian employees today have the highest of all motives for conscientious performance of duty. First and foremost, because we serve to please the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't fear of an earthly master, but it's reverence for, for him that provides the motivation. And if a boss is harsh or unreasonable or ungrateful, a Christian worker looks to Christ for compensation. Uh, not their boss. It's, it's through that relationship with Christ that we're able to bear up and bear under some of those seemingly unbearable situations that we have um, in, in our lives. In Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, uh, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way uh, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. It's interesting. So Paul's thing is always about, you know, he's not looking like, listen, you've got certain rights and human rights, and you need to promote those all the time. Paul says, you know what? Jesus Christ laid down his rights. You lay down yours. Lay them down, right? So the larger project here is whether or not that master of yours is actually seeing glory, seeing weight stuff in your relationship that's different from the normal fleshly reaction that we would have when we are treated unjustly in some instance, and somehow some slight has happened. What do we do? And then Paul finishes his comments with one more reminder that submission is directly related to a person's relationship with God. Every believer will one day give an account uh, for his or her actions, and so now he places it into an eternal context, verse 25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, uh, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul calls for unconditional surrender here. Yeah, and an unwillingness to submit places us in God's role, which is the original sin. Uh, and it's, not, it's, just, it's not a place for us to be. Paul calls us to surrender unconditionally, husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees. Putting on Christ, it leads to this fundamental change. In our submission uh, to others, it's a reflection of our submission to God. And submission begins with the new life. It's the key characteristic of the life that follows, the ability to submit. And following, focusing on above things where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, back in chapter Earlier in chapter 3, that was the context that Paul placed. You know, you are seated in the heavenly places with him, all right? So in this life, you can sub submit. The new self submits. So while husbands, fathers, and slave owners had visible positional power, the truth is, as I just mentioned, wives, children, and slaves have great power as well. We all have a measure of power in our relationships, and we can make others miserable uh, in, in its use if we try. And so with great power comes great responsibility. 
And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is, how are you wielding your power? How are you wielding your power? Where do you need to humble yourself and submit to the best interests of another today? We live in an age that is all about projecting our rights. But the question for us as followers of Christ is, where is it that we need to lay our rights down and to submit? It might be in your work. Um, Today, we're encouraged to be our own brand, to always have the upper hand in our employment, uh, to just kind of be ready to move on to something else if we don't have the situation that we want exactly. Um, But do you see see acts of submission within your work context as evidence of God's glory in your life? Or do you feel like you can escape that because you're so good? Um, If you're an employer, do you see your employees as mere tools for your machine? How do you treat them? Is it that, like, you're lucky you've got a job? You know, I could replace you. There's other people out there. Is that the attitude that we have toward toward the people that work uh, under our care? Or do we honor them by serving them? Do we recognize the humanity that is there first of all? Uh, In your marriage, are you actively submitting to the best interests of your wife or husband, or are you projecting your power to protect yourself? In your family, are you nurturing your children with humility and grace, or are you neglecting them, which I think is often a problem in our valley? Neglect, or are you bullying them? So a sign of the new life, it's submitting to the best interests of others as an act of gratitude and worship before the Lord. This morning, where do you need to submit? Let's pray. Father God, the Christian life is often surprising, and um, and Lord, it's um, well, it's certainly not easy. But you do have some very straightforward things to say to us, Father. As as um, as followers of Christ in a very broken world, God, it's we just we need to constantly be cleansed by your Word. We need to we need to. We need to constantly put ourselves, submit ourselves to it, put ourselves under it, and, and to allow it to speak to us and allow it to um, just cut into those places in our life that need care. And Father, submission is so, is so difficult. And in some ways, Lord, it's very easy for me to talk about what the Bible says about this. But Lord, I know that there's very real situations in relationships and work relationships and family relationships where it's very, very difficult, um, where there have, been, there have been elements of abuse, Father, where there is, there is a, a great chasm that is formed, and it's very, very difficult. But God, I pray that whatever we, wherever we find ourselves this morning, that we would give you a chance in our life, God, that we would, that we would try to understand what the scriptures say about how we respond within that situation and that we seek help. We seek help from our community in order to help us to do that. Father, more than anything else, we're thankful that Jesus Christ submitted his rights in order to serve us. And Father, Jesus came to this earth and really laid everything aside during that time. It's, it's impossible for us to fully appreciate what that was like for him. And yet, Father, he did it willingly He took that first act. He initiated that love with us. Uh, Lord, even while we were yet sinners, as the Bible says, Christ died for us. He came to us. And God, may we catalyze others with that same love, with that same desire, seeking best interests, 
and submitting to you in the process. Father God, may we be people who are marked um, by doing things as is fitting in the Lord, God. Submitting is an act of worship and thankfulness to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.